We hope you are enjoying our expanded podcast schedule. For the month of July, we have something new for our members. Each month, members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of July, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code fireworks at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code fireworks. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I am in believe it or not, Sicily, um, Italy right now. Um, was supposed to be home a couple of days ago. Flights got canceled. There was a fire at the airport. There was a strike at the airport. Uh, it's 105 degrees here. It's been quite a quite an experience. But, you know, we don't let that come between you and great programming conversations you need to hear. And today we've got with us a friend, Miles Taylor, Uh, known to all as Anonymous, who has a new book called Blowback, which looks at um, his time in the Trump administration, his observations about the Trump administration, um, the personal consequences of speaking out and and making those observations about the Trump administration. And I think, most importantly, a warning about where we might be if we end up with either another Trump administration or anything like it. It's an important book. It's extremely well-written. You know Miles, not just from our show, but also from MSNBC and other spots. And we're glad to have you here, Miles. How are you doing? Uh, David, it's great to be with you. And uh, I'll apologize in advance if you hear any noise from here on the streets of New York City. Like you, I had a travel snafu amidst this book tour. So here you find me on the streets of New York. And hopefully that color will add to our conversation. But Great to be with you as always. You know, as a and as an experienced uh, book author, uh, Miles, you know you could have gone to Simon and Schuster and asked them to give you a hotel room. They shouldn't make you sleep in the street. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, they had a wonderful podcast studio lined up for me, and then as New York construction happens, it was blocked and inaccessible until noon. <laughs> well. Look, we're glad we got you. We're glad we tracked you down. We've been meaning to do this for a long time. I read the book in galley form a while back, and I thought it was great. Um, But what I couldn't anticipate was that, you know, this week, the big topic that everybody's talking about is what happens if Trump gets elected again and, um, uh, uh, you know, he tries to essentially shut down civil servants, shut down uh, you know, people who are um, 
committed to the oath they swore to the Constitution um, more than they might be personal loyalty to him. Uh, and I know this is something you and I have talked about for a long, long time. Uh, and I think it was one of the reasons you wrote the book. But don't let me put words in your mouth. How does all this resonate with you right now? Well, I'm, I'm glad you flagged that conversation that's being had this week because Maggie Haberman and Jonathan Swan put out a spectacular piece in the New York Times about how if Trump wins re-election, they have concerted plans in place to exert extraordinary executive power to weaponize the federal government. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, the reason I wrote this book, Blowback, and called it Blowback, is what I've done is detail in a much, much more granular fashion exactly how they want to operate and weaponize the executive branch if Trump or a copycat from the MAGA movement retakes the White House. And folks don't have to take my word for it. I mean, as part of this book, I interviewed dozens and dozens of colleagues from the Trump administration, whether they were cabinet secretaries or staff assistants that sat just outside the Oval Office, all the way to senior Republicans on Capitol Hill who are still in office. And I asked them one question, paint me a picture of a second term, because I, like many people, am sick of Trump retrospectives. We don't need another memoir from people like me out there, you know, trying to, uh, you know, rehabilitate their image about the Trump years. We need to know what will actually happen if we make this mistake again? And I thought I knew what this picture would look like. And I'm sure, you know, David, you as well as anyone uh, would be able to paint a pretty alarming picture. But even I was surprised by what people were telling me about the extent to which they're already planning to use federal departments and agencies to exact revenge against political rivals and the political opposition. This is the type of thing that would have made sense if I, if I was writing a book about a third world dictatorship, but this is the United States of America. And those plans span every aspect of the government from America's spy agencies to the Department of Homeland Security, even the Department of Education. They have plans on the shelf about how to weaponize the Department of Education to go against political adversaries and opponents. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, you were very helpful to me when I was doing American Resistance. I talked to 100 people. You've now talked to a bunch of other people. You are closer to those people. You worked with those people. And I think the surprising thing to me, reading your book, having written my book, is the unanimity of the view. It's not like there were a few people who said, oh, beware in the next term of the Trump administration. Essentially, every person that I spoke to, and I gather every person that you spoke to, said, the second one will be much worse than the first, uh, and it will be, um, uh, you know, gutted and loyalists put in place, and all these schemes will be um, undertaken. And the degree of the consequences, I think, we need to paint a, a picture of, and I think you do a good job of that in the book, because essentially, Trump hates DOJ. And Trump is going to try to eviscerate it and shut it down. Trump doesn't trust the intelligence agencies um, and feels that they're out to get him uh, and are sort of listening in on his conversations with overseas. The, the MAGA GOP has a real bone to pick on education, a real bone to pick on the Centers for Disease Control and uh, Health and Human Services. Um, uh, they've got real issues with your old place the Department of Homeland Security um, uh, on on immigration issues. Would you say that 
any Republican administration that might be elected in 2024, if it comes from the top four or five candidates right now, um, is going to be a threat to democracy the way that we know it? You know, David, few people have cataloged this more effectively than you have. Uh, and, you know, in your book, talking to the, you know, so-called deep state operatives who, who protected America, really just loyal public servants who wanted to protect this country, it becomes really evident that without those guardrails, the really, really bad things can and will happen. And, uh, you know, that's what, uh, that's what I heard time and time again in this book is exactly what those things will look like. And I think it's very plausible, even if it's the reason I call this book blowback, a warning to save democracy against the next Trump is that it's either going to be Trump returning to the white house or a savvier successor. And I do think they will govern like he does. And here's why, because since the Trump administration, we have seen his acolytes in the Republican party actually go further than he was willing to go as president and pick up, policies that even Trump discarded and and see them through to fruition. I'll give you two examples. One that I mentioned in the book is when Trump called us in February 2019, and he said he wanted us to bus and dump migrants from the U.S. border into Democratic cities. In fact, he specifically said he wanted us to send the murderers, the rapists, and the criminals into these cities to create disorder because he wanted to punish Democrats for protecting migrants. Uh, now, look, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that this would be illegal, but I made sure to ask administration lawyers so I would be armed to go back to the president and say, you cannot do this. It is illegal. We told that to the White House, and Trump very ruefully, very angrily stood down and didn't execute the proposal. Well, what have we seen since the Trump administration? We've seen people like Ron DeSantis in Florida and Greg Abbott in Texas say, well, we don't think it's illegal. And they've engaged in systematic efforts to use migrants as political pawns, to bus and dump them all across the country as a, as a political tool. I mean, that's genuinely a disgusting thing that even Trump was talked out of. Another example would be the FBI. I mean, we talked Trump out of gutting the FBI. He wanted to send my former boss, John Kelly, in as FBI director, and he wanted him to clean house over there. Trump was ultimately convinced that that could result in his impeachment. And so, again, he stood down. But now this fringe idea of taking a wrecking ball to the nation's premier law enforcement agency, the FBI, has become a mainstream talking point in the Republican Party. So my point here is that Trumpism has spiraled beyond his control. And any of these Republicans I see in the field who are running against him who have a shot of beating him seem really likely to try to carry that mantle even further than Donald Trump did. And that's what really scares me, David. You know, it, it, it's, it's striking. You bring up DeSantis, who's a, a running, and there's a, uh, another one of the candidates. Um, but, but, but I think the, the, the notion that this pervades the party um, is illustrated well by the other story that's broken this week, which is, you know, Greg Abbott's apparent order to his, quote, troops from Texas to push migrants back into the river, mothers and children back into the river. There's already a story of a, of a fatality that's resulted from this. Um, this is a, um, a shift in the mindset of the leaders of an entire party. Um, and I think it came, you know, a lot of us expected Trump to be a disaster. 
But a lot of sort of mainstream Republicans, and you sort of fell into that group at the beginning of all of this, thought, well, we can change him. He will be, you know, malleable. Uh, We need to do our duty and what will happen will be more normal than we thought. And the struggle to recognize how abnormal it was, and then the struggle to come to the conclusion that you needed to speak it out is one of the great things at the heart of this book, because it's a very personal story. You talk about the toll that it's taken on you. Um, And candidly, you know, when I spoke to many of your former colleagues, you know, they were deeply apprehensive about running, you know, afoul of this kind of nationwide violent extremist movement that has taken over what once was the Republican Party, but now is the MAGA Party. Well, it, it's it's true. And as part of this book and, and this podcast, I was lucky to get to be a part of that iHeartRadio just released called The Whistleblowers. I got to spend a lot of time with these people talking about the consequences of speaking out and what the state of dissent looks like in America. And it's a really disturbing picture because... You know, maybe 10 years ago, turning against a president you worked under would result in you getting cast out of the party. Okay, but we wouldn't expect it to result in you having to change homes, you know, arm your family with concealed carry pistols, run for their lives. And I hear these stories again and again, and and we experienced it, too. And, you know, no sympathy is needed on my end. But I do think I'm a cautionary tale of how violent this, you know, uh, the public dissent has become in this country. I mean, I spent election night 2020 under armed guard in a safe house alone in Northern Virginia with a pistol under my pillow. That's what it came to because of the severity of the threats we were facing simply because of my criticism against Donald Trump. And he'd fanned the flames of it by urging his supporters with a wink and a nod to make bad things happen. Uh, to people like me. So we're in, I think, a very precarious moment. And uh, this is going to sound ironic coming from me, David, but I keep saying it. And I think it's important to say, I think the biggest threat to our democracy is anonymity. Yes, that's ironic coming out of the mouth of so-called anonymous. But what I learned in that period is the delay in unmasking myself actually was had a lot of consequences for me personally, as you know, the pressure led me towards self-destructive behavior. I grappled with alcoholism. I grappled with depression. Um, But more to the point, by not coming forward sooner, I deprived people of the opportunity to see that it was okay to come forward. In fact, once I did unmask myself, the thing I was delighted to find is it made it so much easier for other colleagues of mine to come forward because they said, Oh, okay, the water's a little warmer. It's a little bit easier to go forward. There's other Republicans doing this. And, and I, I, that's my one regret, is I wish I had come forward a lot sooner and started that effort to recruit other officials because it takes one or two or three or a dozen people out there to make it easier for others to come forward. And you and I both know this because it's, you know, it's what you would call the bystander phenomenon. I mean, in New York City, we hear stories every year of someone you know, getting beaten up on a subway and attacked and killed by an assailant. And it's never an empty subway. It's always a crowded train because there is this phenomenon in human nature that if there's an attack happening, 
we always expect someone else is going to go first. And once someone does step forward, it makes it easier for others to step forward. But if no one does, people just stand there and watch. And I worry that's happening in our democracy again with Donald Trump, especially in the Republican Party, is people still behind the scenes at the highest levels are saying they want the party to move on from Trump. They're sick of Trump. And yet publicly, they still defend him. They are acting like bystanders and they need to step forward and stop him from wreaking havoc against our democracy. And if they don't, I worry that we're going to zombie walk into the same mistake we made last time. But this is the last time we'll make it because I do sincerely believe as a national security professional that Donald Trump is the biggest national security threat to the United States and his allies, if reinstalled in the White House, will fully dismantle democracy's guardrails. And and that's really what I try to detail in the book. Well, you know, I mean, you've been uh, courageous and, and, and candid in this respect. And, you know, again, I spoke to a number of your colleagues for my book. You spoke to some for your book. Uh, they've, they've sort of come out. But within the leadership of the Republican Party, no sign of it. No sign of it happening at all. Here you have Trump. Looks like he's about to be indicted again for leading an insurrection against the U.S. government, was indicted for stealing and abusing classified documents, high-level national security secrets that, uh, by being mishandled, put the country at risk, um, has uh, uh, been uh, convicted in in an abuse case or or had a judgment against him in that. uh, indicted in the New York case, uh, probably will be um, uh, uh, indicted in a Georgia case shortly. And it's crickets. It's crickets. You know, you say, and I've heard you say, you know, oh, Kevin McCarthy, he knows he's a doofus by. N- nobody's saying anything. No, I mean, you have a- Asa Hutchinson and, and maybe one or two other, you know, folks. But, but, but for the most part, this party seems to be zombified, mesmerized. The Pied Piper of corruption is leading them off the cliff. It, it really is. And I actually would say it's worse than crickets, David, because rather than stay silent about his corruption, they have normalized it. I, I shouldn't have been surprised the other day when Ron DeSantis went on TV and rather than use Trump's looming indictment over the insurrection to attack his political opponent. I mean, you'd think a smart guy running against someone like Trump would want to use anything against him. Instead, DeSantis's comment was that he's worried about the justice system being politicized and used against people for political purposes. He totally, instead of attacking Trump, he attacked the American justice system and the brave nonpartisan civil servants who are working to hold Donald Trump accountable for what is quite obviously criminal behavior. That's what's really worrying about this moment is those folks aren't telling the truth and they still continue to say one thing in private and another thing in public. You mentioned Kevin McCarthy, but this also applies to a vast array of senior Republican leaders who, you know, still will say at cocktail parties in Washington, oh yeah, he's a buffoon, he's a psycho, he's a danger to the country. And then they go out and and defend him. And that you know, again, I, I call that broadly anonymity, that anonymity, that unwillingness to say publicly what they say privately is really putting us at grave risk of this happening again. And Donald Trump has a very clear path back to the presidency. In fact, again, the odds makers 
uh, say that he's got three times the chances of being the next president of the United States as he had on the eve of his election in 2016 when he actually won. I mean, that's an indicator that people are still willing to vote for the guy. And, uh, you know, when you say zombie walking back into this space, it makes me think of all of the things that people even still don't know about that Trump wanted to do that were illegal. I mean, I would say that the Trump administration was a graveyard of impeachable offenses. And we still only know where some of those bodies were buried. And if he's elected or if a copycat is elected, they will resurrect those zombies and bring those policies back to life. And there won't be a lot of guardrails to stop them. No, in fact, that's his whole point. But, you know, one of the things you write about in the book so well, um, uh, in fact, I'll be honest, I was jealous. You had some great stories that I wish I had come up with while I was, you know, doing my book. But, you know, Trump would constantly float ideas that were deranged. I mean, absolutely deranged um, for the use of military against immigrants or you know, codifying racism or, uh, uh, you know, the way he wanted to handle the COVID thing or, or whatever. And um, it was only because there were civil servants there, people who'd taken an oath to the Constitution, that he was impeded in some way. And if they're not there and you've got a government full of Cash Patels and Rick Grinnells and Stephen Millers, country is, you know, fucked. It, it is, and I, it all, I'll pick an example. There's someone that you and I both know named Josh Venable, really brave public servant. He served as Trump's appointed chief of staff at the Department of Education. And one of the stories Josh tells in this book is about a really bizarrely cruel policy that I wasn't even aware of, that they kept, the White House kept trying to get the Department of Education to implement And Josh called it, quote, the cockroach that wouldn't die. And here's what the policy was. The White House wanted the Department of Education to withhold money from any public school system in the United States that was educating children of undocumented parents. Let me be more specific about this. They wanted to kick students out of school from immigrant families if their parents weren't documented, to kick them out of schools to punish them, to send a message, to send a message to migrants and other countries that they shouldn't come to America because their kids won't be in school. They'll be turned away from school. I mean, we're talking about young people that are just trying to learn. I just, I was so sickened by that. But then there was another story the same week that I was told, David, which was over at the Department of Veterans Affairs, that Trump had tried to take a wrecking ball to the VA. He wanted to get rid of the veterans social the existing social safety net because he found out that the VA had a 250 billion dollar budget which actually makes it the second biggest department in the federal government and he didn't want to spend the money on veterans and so he told his senior leaders at the Department of Veterans Affairs again in their words to take a wrecking ball to the department and gut it and he wanted to go spend that money somewhere else in fact a senior leader that Trump had appointed at the VA said miles he thought of veterans as lazy malingerers. And and we all know about Trump's animosity towards veterans. It's been documented. I mean, you know, he he's reputed to have said that uh, the troops who died in, in France and the Normandy invasion were suckers and losers. But this is something we need to worry about in a second term is America's America's veterans being essentially left out on the street. I mean, 
the number two at Trump's Department of Veterans Affairs, his deputy secretary basically said to me, thousands of them, tens of thousands of them could die and will end up homeless if the policies Trump had wanted to implement went into effect. Those guys won't be hired to protect the VA in the next administration. People who say yes will put in, be put in to run that department. What can we do? You know, what can we do? I, you're, you're on TV a lot, you know, and I, I, I think that's a great thing. And, um, you know, I'm on TV sometime. There's some other people out there. A lot of the people who are your colleagues in the administration, by the way, who I know and you know, feel the way you do, um, they don't go out and talk. Um, and uh, uh, you, there are people you worked with on Capitol Hill who are very sensible, quite traditional Republicans um, who won't speak up. And, and every, you know, people are voting by keeping their mouths shut. Every time they don't engage, uh, they make it more likely Trump is going to get elected. Um, what, you know, would your message be? What is your message? To people out there in the general public who are trying to make a difference and avoid the catastrophe that another term would be. Well, I would say to them, um, don't depend on that so-called axis of adults uh, next time, because as you note, David, a lot of those people still haven't come forward. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Paul Ryan, but it's, it confounds me why Paul Ryan is not out there every single day warning the country about this. And there are so many others that should be. But but I've sort of given up on that cohort being the ones to persuade Americans to turn against this authoritarian strain in our politics. And as insipid as it sounds, I genuinely think that the real answer is everyday Americans and voters doing this themselves. And, you know, you're told in kindergarten, you know, one person can make a difference and you spend your life thinking, you know, how can I in a country of 300 million people make a difference? Well, again, look at the 2020 election. The 2020 election was decided by a few thousand voters in key swing states. And when we dive into the data, we find out that a majority of those that helped flip those key swing states for Joe Biden were Republicans. They were Republicans that were sick of Trump. They were concerned and they had just enough air cover from others to come forward and say, you know what, I'm going to hold my nose and vote for a Democrat for the first time in my life because we got to get this guy out of office. We are talking about an election in 2024 that's likely to be just as close. It will be down to probably a few handful of votes, tens of thousands of votes in key swing states. So people in those communities, people in those states really need to not be intimidated by the MAGA tribe. They need to speak the truth at barbecues and dinners because it makes it easier for someone else to do it. And I've lived this before. I was just at a dinner a couple weeks ago with my wife's family and some family friends came over. Wonderful people. But one of the folks who was there was a very MAGA person. Now, what the rest of the table normally would have done is just gone quiet and just kind of let them spout MAGA views not push back because people are scared about upsetting the apple cart. But I tried to approach that conversation in a really thoughtful way by trying to empathize with that person's view. Someone who's frustrated with the government, doesn't think Washington's listening, sick of corruption, likes Trump's policies, is willing to ignore his defective character. 
And I engaged in a conversation. I don't know if I changed the person's mind, but we have to be willing, each of us individually, to have those conversations because that vote could literally be the vote that prevents our democracy from total backsliding into a pseudo-autocracy. And make no mistake, that's what will happen in the next go-round. And I won't get into too much detail on this, but it's in the book. Trump explored things like building his own mercenary force, his own Wagner group that would be accountable to him, uh, deploying the US, U.S. military onto city streets, and sending DHS forces to the polls to intimidate the political opposition. These are the behaviors of an autocrat. These are the behaviors of a dictator. And we're only a few thousand votes away from something like that potentially happening again. So it does come down to individuals having the courage to have those conversations in their communities. Well, I think your book is a loud uh, alarm that needs to be heeded by everybody. The book is blowback. Um, you also have this podcast series come coming out that you've been working on. I talked to you before, um, and that is called Whistleblowers. It's called The Whistleblowers. It's from iHeartMedia. It just got released last week. You can find it everywhere. And, and these are really, really pretty emotional and gripping stories of some of the people that spoke out. It's the stories you didn't hear from inside the Trump administration. Um, and, and I encourage you to hear these these people. Uh, their experiences were harrowing, but they're also in and of themselves a warning about why we shouldn't let someone like this ever enter the Oval Office again. Yeah, abs- absolutely. I think people need to read it. And, and in the current era, you need to keep in mind that um, everybody has a platform, whether it's on threads or still on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or uh, uh, some other form of social media. Everybody has the ability to go out and influence people at this moment. So you're not a lone voice anymore. Um, and uh, amplifying some of the things you hear um, in blowback and in the whistleblowers uh, from miles on TV uh, is really, really, really important. For now, I'm glad you're doing well, Miles. I'm glad you've got this book out. Congratulations. Uh, hope you'll come back soon because this is important stuff to talk about over and over again and not just in the hot moments after a book comes out. Um, and um, uh, you know, we can sell books in, in two months, two, three months, you know, so we can, we can keep this going. Um, but well, I, I mean, David, David, I, I would encourage folks to, to definitely pick up though, if they haven't read American resistance, your book, it is sublime and, and is in and of itself a warning about why we can't do this again. So really grateful for your patriotism and outspokenness. It's, it's had a huge impact on folks like me and, you provided moral air cover for people like me to come out and do what we did. So uh, I thank you for that. Well, you're very kind. But it reminds me, in the olden days, before your time, there was a good magazine in New York called Spy Magazine. And they had a little section in Spy Magazine. It was a humor magazine, but it was political too. One of the first that ever called out Trump. And it had a section called Log Rolling in Our Times. And what it was was different authors writing blurbs for each other's books and it, and it was kind of like yeah this is a book of genius and then the other one goes yeah that you know well that's what we're doing here and you know the, you know the, the 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 only difference is we're being completely honest right i mean this is just uh this is just our candid appraisal um in any event enjoy new york i hope simon and schuster finds you a hotel room 
Uh, I hope the book launch goes goes extremely well. Uh, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Well, if you if you live in New York and you see me laying on the street, uh, you know, if you give me a couch to sleep on, that would be great. But David, thank you. Thank you for what you do. And, and I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Miles. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, we'll, of course, be back uh, next week with more of this. Uh, we've got podcasts almost every day of every week. So go tune in, uh, join us, and uh, uh, we look forward to uh, engaging with you again very soon. Bye-bye.